Well, good morning, podcasters, and welcome to an explosive uh, edition of the Banking Litigation Podcast, episode number 36. And uh, about to send a rocket up me, no doubt, is my co-host. Good morning, Kerry. How are you? Morning. I'm well, John. How are you doing? Come on. Send a bit more enthused, Kerry. How are we doing? Yes. Um, excellent. Fantastic. This Thursday morning. There was a, a plot against me there. And behind the glasses ever is James. Hello, James. And welcoming this morning... Uh, Kerry and I are welcoming our um, fantastic banking litigation associate, Elena Cormosh. Good morning, Elena. We'll be Good taking morning, us through a few cases buried away underneath um, this uh, parliament of fun. Okay, uh, Kerry, I think you're about to kick us off with an exciting uh, decision. Um, CMC, and, uh, uh, CMC spread bet in Cengiz, is that right? Yeah, that is indeed right. That's my first decision for today. And this one will be of interest to financial services providers in that it's a good example of the way the court will approach the exercise of contractual discretion in a closeout scenario. Against the current turbulent economic and political climate, I know this is a topical issue for many of our clients. And so I've selected this case as our deep dive this month. If we think back to the Supreme Court's decision in Braganza and BP shipping, we'll remember that there um, that when there's a commercial contract which provides one party with a contractual discretion, by which we mean that the decision maker must make an assessment or choose from a range of options, that decision maker must exercise its discretion in a manner that's not arbitrary, capricious or irrational in the public law sense. Do you know where the uh, word capricious comes from, Kerry? Um, I don't actually, John. Same as Capricorn, it's the goat. The goat jumps about irrationally. Um, anyway, um, I, you remind me, Kay. Um, so there's you know, I think a number of um banking decisions where uh, this public law principle has been imported. I'm thinking of Socomer, your option, and I think UBS and Rose. Is that right, Kay? Um, yes, although UBS and Rose, I think, was an absolute dis- um, contractual right. That's correct. Right. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yes, of course, but Soshima and your option indeed, you're very right, John. Um, So the present case is another financial services example where the court looked at how the Braganza duty should be applied to a contractual discretion to close out uh, of the trading account of a customer. And on the facts of this case, the decision maker was a spread betting trading company. Oh, Kerry, please could you remind our illustrious listeners what spread betting is? Uh, Yeah, of course. Um, So spread betting is a form of contract for differences uh, where investors speculate about the price movement of financial markets without owning any of the underlying assets. So I suppose you could make a bomb out of it if you've got the right flair. Otherwise, your money could go up in smoke. Exactly right, John. And I'm sure you can all guess which way this one goes. So in the present case, the claimant, Mr. Chengers, decided to open a spread betting account with the defendant company, CMC, and he was provided with two options. The default position was that he would be a retail client, which would limit his ability to trade with a negative balance, but would give him negative balance protection, which would limit his losses. Instead, Mr. Jengers completed a request uh, form to elect to be treated as a professional client, which allowed him to trade on a highly leveraged basis and operate an account with a negative balance. However, as these things tend to go, Mr. Jengers was hoist with his own petard. He made a number of bad investments. The account went into deficit and was eventually closed by CMC. 
you know where that phrase comes from, Kerry? <laughs> repeat question. Um, I didn't before yesterday when I worked out what I would say today. Uh, would you like to tell our listeners, John? Yes, I'd love to tell our podcasters, Kerry. It's from Act 3, Scene 4 of Hamlet. And the full quote is, let it work, for it is the sports to have the engineer hoist with his own petard, and it shall go, but I will delve one yard below their minds and blow them to the moon. So there we go. A nice fit with the theme of the day. Um, so thanks, John. A handy bit of idiom education for the next pub quiz. So uh, turning back to the case at hand, with Mr Chengiz's accounts having been closed in a significant deficit, CMC sought to recover the debt but Mr. Chengez relied on a number of defences, including that he should not have been treated as an elective professional client and was not adequately warned about the loss of protection he would have enjoyed as a retail investor. However, for the purpose of this podcast, we will focus on one defence in particular, which was that CMC had a contractual discretion to delay closeout for a reasonable time in order to request payment. And by failing, allegedly, to exercise this discretion, acted in an irrational manner, contrary to an implied Braganza duty. Now, all of Mr. Chengiz's defences were rejected by the court, and on the contractual discretion defence, it's important to note that both parties accepted that CMC did have an implied Braganza duty to act in a manner that was not um, that was that was reasonable and not irrational, arbitrary, or capricious when closing out Mr. Chengiz's account. Importantly, the court held that CMC did not breach this duty. The reasons given for this are set out in our blog post summarising the case. And there is, of course, a link in the show notes. And I will leave you to read these at your leisure. But one I would pull out now is that CMC had actually already agreed to Mr. Chengiz's request for a delay to close out while trying to find a solution. And the court said that CMC wasn't required to delay any further, um, even with deteriorating market conditions. Kerry, do you think this decision would affect the standard of discretion applicable to the Ease the Master Agreement? Does it muddy the waters in any way? Um, good point, Elna. So it's interesting to think about the potential read across to the ISDA scenario. In terms of a non-defaulting party's contractual discretion in calculating the closeout amount payable, there's quite a lot of case law coming out of the collapse of Lehman Brothers. And so I think we're safe from any confusion on that front. As to any wider questions of what standards should apply to other closeout related decisions, then we get into quite tricky territory and probably beyond the scope of this podcast. But if any of our banking clients listening to this podcast wish to discuss the point further, then we would be delighted to do so. Yes, indeed. And um, thank you, Kerry. Uh, the blog post on this decision um, is definitely uh, worth a read podcasters. So after you've gone out to watch your local fireworks display, perhaps you can kick back, relax with some light evening reading. But moving on, um, I have a contractual construction case in the context of a securitisation structure, and that's Banca Generali and CFE Suisse and another. Well, we don't get many securitisation decisions, so thank you for picking up on this one, John. Yes, and it's a very interesting one. You're welcome, Kerry. Um, I think it's a very interesting example of the commercial approach that the court will take in this kind of case. And the case will be of particular interest to any banked financial institutions who are looking to access customer documentation in a securitization transaction. 
Perhaps the bank is worried there's going to be any treasonous plots in relation to the underlying asset which has been securitized. But without wishing to get too bogged down, the facts very broadly are that a bank acting for senior note holders in the securitization structure became concerned that inaccurate information had been provided by the issuer in respect to the underlying exposure. And the key issue for the bank was whether it would be able to properly calculate a fair value for the senior notes in accordance with its regulatory obligations. And so the bank issued proceedings for copies of the transactional documents constituting the receivables, such as loan agreements, guarantees, security documents, etc. I would have thought that there are regulations which cater for an investor to get access to securitization documentation. That's a very good point, Lena. Um, and there is indeed a regulatory uh, disclosure regime under the uh, EU and UK securitization regulations. But uh, whilst these provide for investors to access contractual documentation relating to the securitization itself, they do not explicitly cover the underlying customer documentation for the receivables, if that distinction is clear. And in this case, the bank needed the source documentation because it was worried that the issuer had provided inaccurate information. And given you said that this is a contractual interpretation case, I assume there was a contractual right to request these documents? One step ahead of me, Elena, as always. Uh, that's precisely uh, what the bank argued, and the court agreed, granting the order sought by way of a mandatory injunction. Now, the case is quite complex, and I've just given you some very high-level summary, but I'll highlight two of the key issues. The first is that the court found that as a matter of contractual construction, that the documents and the information sought fell within the relevant clause and the bank had a contractual right to the information. And the fact that the regulatory provisions did not require such documents or information to be provided didn't matter. It was open to the parties to agree that the documents or information ought to be provided under the contract. The second point is that although the, there was a contractual right to the information, the right was limited by the requirement of reasonableness uh, and the requesting party had to act reasonably and the information had to be reasonably available or be obtained using reasonable efforts. And on the facts of this case, the court agreed that the request was reasonable and the court thought that the request was proportionate as well, given the specific concerns raised by the bank. And the issuer was required to keep the information under the terms of the contract in any event. So there was no doubt that the document could be reasonably obtained. And I assume we have a blog post on this one too, John? Absolutely right, we do indeed. And there's a link in the show notes if you'd like some more detail on the case. Well, that's enough uh, from me, uh, Elena. Uh, it's your turn. I believe you're up now to talk us through the much-anticipated um, Court of Appeal decision on disruption to commercial contracts as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. I am indeed, John. I'll be talking about the Court of Appeal decision in Bank of New York Mellon International and Cine UK and London Trocadero. What a snappy title, Elena. <laughs> in brief summary, the Court of Appeal dismissed appeals against the grant of summary judgment to commercial landlords for payment of rent where premises had to be closed because of COVID-19. And what's the financial services slant to this case? Well, while it's not strictly a financial services or banking case, it is talk of the town in the world of commercial law and raises really interesting points about COVID-19 and its effect on implied contractual terms. What fascinating life we lead, Lena. <laughs> the facts can be summarised very quickly. Two underlying cases were joined on appeal. In both cases, the respondents were the landlords under leases for cinemas and the appealants were tenants or guarantors under those leases. 
The landlords sought to recover arrears of rent for periods during which the premises were closed during, uh, due to COVID restrictions. The landlords were successful in high court and cinemas appealed, arguing that they were not liable to pay for, for two principal reasons. Firstly, terms should be implied into the leases uh, to the effect that the obligations to pay rent were suspended during periods when the premises could not lawfully be used as cinemas. And secondly, there had been a total failure of consideration. On the first question, the Court of Appeal referred to two key cases on the implication of terms, U Design Services and Marks and Spencer. Those cases revealed two tests for the implication of a term. First, the term must be necessary to give business efficacy to the contract. And second, the term is so obvious it goes without saying. Is the second test ref you refer to the famous test of the officious bystander? Indeed, it is, Carrie. But unfortunately for the appealants, neither of these tests were met in the present case. The term was not necessary for the purposes of business efficacy because the leases worked perfectly well without implied terms. In fact, the leases even allocated the risk that the leased premises could not lawfully operate as cinemas. And equally, no officious bystander would have suggested that the proposed terms were obvious. It's probably worth noting that the Court of Appeal referred to comments made in the U Design decision, specifically that the test for implication of terms into a contract is a stringent one. And in fact, the Court of Appeal held here that it was nowhere near satisfied in these two cases. Yes. And the Court of Appeal was equally frosty towards the appealant's arguments on failure of consideration, suggesting that it would be a very rare case in which such a case could be made out, despite the existence and performance of a valid contract. We're being dispassionate about it. It's, the result is not exactly rocket science. Agree, John. And we have a blog post on this case, so do check out the link in the show notes if you're interested. Well, thank you very much, uh, Elena, for that. And to finish off with a bang, as ever, we'll uh, whiz through a sparkling assortment of regulatory news, procedural updates and publications. So don your safety glasses and make sure you're standing at the minimum, minimum safety distance. And I'll kick us off. Um, on the regulatory side, the FCA has now published final rules and guidance relating to the new, we call it new, but the new consumer duty, which we've helped which we've helpfully linked in the show notes. So thank you, James, behind the safety glass for doing that. Although the nature and the scope of the duty remains largely unchanged in most areas, the final rules and guidance contain some changes and clarifications relating to how the duty will apply to distribution chains, closed books, wholesale markets, and funds and asset managers. And firms will have more time to implement changes needed to comply with new duty. And what timescales are we talking then, John? Uh, so for new and existing products and services that are open to sale, the date for compliance is now the 31st of July next year, 2023. And for products and services held in closed books, the date is the 31st of July, 2024, uh, a full year later. And are there any civil or consequences for banks if they fail to comply with this duty? Uh, yep, thank you for that, Kerry. That, that's a very important point. Um, thankfully for financial services firms, the FCA has confirmed that no private right of action has been incorporated into the final rules. So if you think about it, certain uh, customers can bring uh, claims under Section 138D of FISMA. That uh, right of action does not apply uh, to this new uh, duty. So the mechanism for enforcing the duty will still be the financial ombudsman service. 
But the possibility of a private right of action is being kept under review. So we may yet see um, some changes in the future. Elena, back to you. I'll hand over the torch. Thank you, John. Um, I would briefly like to look at one of the new cases on Practice Direction 57AC, which applies to trial witness statements. The case is called McKinney Plant and Safety and the Construction Industry Training Board. I think our podcasters will be familiar with this new practice direction, as the amount of satellite litigation it has produced has not, unlike fireworks, we'll hopefully see on Saturday, blown up recently. Yeah, in previous editions of this podcast, we've talked about courts trying to enforce strict compliance with uh, PD 57AC, whilst at the same time ensuring that it's not opportunistically used as gunpowder by the other side. So I will be interested to hear where this recent case law development leaves us. That's exactly right. Courts have warned us that misuse of the practice direction by parties to litigation is treasonous. This case, however, warns us of the dangers of dismissing complaints of non-compliance. Here, the court found that there was significant non-compliance with PD 57AC by the claimant. The statement in question included extensive commentary on other evidence and submissions and failed to include a list of documents referred to in the evidence as per the practice direction. The court's permission to serve the witness statement was therefore conditional on a number of faults being corrected, but the court also ordered the claimant to pay costs on the indemnity basis because the breaches were so serious and the claimant refused to engage with the seriousness of the breach. I think nitpicking was the phrase used by the claimant to describe the complaints raised by the defendant in this case. Yeah, that's right. A cautionary tale to take complaints of non-compliance seriously, I think. Too right. These decisions demonstrate that each case will turn on its own facts. So if you want to read further detail, please do check out blog post. Link in the show notes. Well, thank you for that, Elena. Um, I think very quickly we'd like to highlight an article that um, HSF has published on the Russian sovereign debt default. Kerry, are you able to tell us a bit more about that? Yes, thank you, John. I will do quickly. Uh, We have indeed published an article on Russia's default on its foreign currency sovereign debts from the perspective of potential disputes and litigation. So our article highlights the reasons for Russia's default and explores the scope of potential litigation by bondholders, other investors and derivatives disputes. So if you're interested, please do access the article through the link in the show notes. And that's all from me. Thank you. Well, look, thank you very much, uh, Elena, our um, ace guest today. Thank you very much, Kerry, for uh, co-hosting an explosive uh, range of topics today. And thank you as ever to James Behind the Glass for uh, making it all happen. So podcasters, take care, look after yourselves until we speak again. And uh, thank you for having us through your speakers this morning. Goodbye. <laughs>